Superbrain is a labour of love. Alas, no podcast can survive on love alone. We don't have a sponsor, so we need your support for Superbrain to stay alive and kicking. You can make a one-off donation by following the Support This Show link in the show or episode description. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, my name is Sabina Brennan, and you are listening to Super Brain, the podcast for everyone with a brain. This is actually the last episode of season four. I can't believe it. I've had an incredible bunch of guests this season. I've really, really enjoyed it. I hope you have. And this guest today is just Oh, my God. I'm so excited to talk to him. He is, in my opinion, Ireland's most wonderful screenwriter, actor, performer, theatre writer. He has so many awards from places like IFTA. His films have played at Sundance from the Cannes Film Festival. He even was shortlisted for Best Foreign Language Film for the Oscars. And you know what? I know how much that means as a former actor, but... I just think you were robbed that you didn't make it to the actual short shortlist, whatever they short actually shortlist. Call I know. It. Well, there was nine of us who were longlisted, and then longlisted—that's what I should have said. Yeah. And then out of that, five got nominations. And weirdly enough, in my life, I've never really been that interested in the Oscars because I never thought it was going to have anything to do with my life, and I've never watched the Oscars. I'm not into all of the dressing up thing. Yeah. So I was like, yeah, fine. But when it was dangled in front of me. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> so on the day that they were being announced, I was really delighted because Room, which is Lenny Abrahamson, yes. was also in the running for the big Oscars and blah, blah, blah. And he got nominated and I was really delighted for him. But I went for a walk because I knew they were going to be announced. And I got a few things over Twitter that said, oh, you were robbed. Oh, blah, blah. Oh, so that's how you found out. So I knew that I was like, I think I was on Henry Street and I was like, OK, I'm going to allow myself to be really upset for half an hour. Right. I'm going to walk around the streets feeling sorry for myself and then I'm going to go home and start working. And that's basically what I did. In one way, I was very thankful that we didn't get there because it would have absolutely killed my mother because she was so excited. <laughs> Who knows? She'd have had some sort of a heart collapse. Uh, yeah, apoplexy. Of... <laughs> Indeed. So, yeah, that was a kind of a funny episode in my life. <laughs> and that's funny, you know, when you say that, that you're not into the dressing up kind of thing because... The movie for which you were nominated for was Viva, which is about drag queens. Uh, it is which about drag queens, but they were finding their own kind of glamour. Like it wasn't yeah. except like the drag queens in Ireland or in London or in New York would look at these drag queens and go like, oh, for God's sake, what are they doing? Yeah, bad yeah. wigs, bad dresses. And it's it, not it, it dressing was, up. Yeah, it was kind that. of self-expression. I kind of look at fashion and I go, God, that's really interesting. But I literally, I can barely dress myself. As you can see, I'm wearing oh, a just... coloured top. So like... <laughs> I like Uh, mustard. And actually, you know what? I've gained so much weight. I was just thinking about it. So these are loose things that I bought so that I can be comfortable until I lose Mm. the weight and get back into my own clothes. And I've been blaming lockdown for my weight gain. But actually, my book came out in March this year. Uh 
and I was perfectly slim. (laughs) (laughs) So actually, I'm just thinking we put our house up on the market a month after my book was published. And actually, I'm thinking probably it's the stress around that that has actually has caused me and the limbo that I feel like I'm in. And I also don't have my pressure cooker releases. So if I'm struggling, if I'm struggling to write something, if I can't figure a way to do something, I will generally do something like go up to Woody's, get myself a tin of paint and I'll paint the house or I'll go up to Ikea and I'll get new cushions and I'll rearrange stuff and I'll spend time not doing what I need to do and that gives me the space and then I can come back and write and I think maybe I've missed that and also then we had a few other health issues my eldest son was very very ill and more recently both of us so when we heard on Saturday that the signing and the moving is imminent I actually feel I I worked all weekend I got so much work done so now I have to work on the I think a lot of people with COVID and uh I think somebody on a podcast described it as people became COVIDly obese, which makes me laugh. <laughs> That's a great, yeah. It's yeah. a great phrase. I think that what happened was their routines were, yeah. were thrown into the air. So the routine was I'd always get to the gym by the end of the day. Yeah. I'd, I'd do it three, four times a week. Suddenly that was gone. There was no need to leave the house and yeah. you had no excuse to leave the house. You weren't doing what was, oh, bloody hell, I've got to go into town for a meeting and they're racing through town that was shedding more calories and blah, yeah. blah. So, I mean, I noticed myself coming out of lockdown with a fine belly on me. It was yeah. the first time I'd ever had it in my whole life. I no, because like, you're a really slender individual yeah, and so you still look like, very this is is very interesting I mean I wasn't upset by it or anything yeah and during lockdown I had done great walks and blah 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 blah. yeah yeah you miss life had halted a little bit and our lives became reduced they became smaller yeah they did and and actually I did a good bit of exercise we bought bikes at the start and we Mm -hmm. did a lot of cycling up and down but yeah I don't know I think it has been sort of multiple stressors for me more this year actually than last year anyway I want to get back to your movie this podcast is For all the listeners know this, it is about surviving and thriving in life. And what I would really like to do is talk to you about that through your films, because a lot of your films are about that Mm. surviving and thriving. And you know what? Sometimes I really love this job because I just spent the morning watching Viva. Oh, did you? (laughs) I did. And I shed some tears at the end, but at least it was only at the end. Some of your work I haven't been able to watch. They're sad films sometimes. Yeah. I remember saying it to you one time. I think it was a BBC drama. The 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 Virtues. The uh, Virtues. That was a Channel 4 drama. but Channel 4. Really heavy, heavy, heavy material. Um, And one of my uh, my favourite UK actors, actually. uh, Dean Graham. Oh, my God. He's an incredible actor. And he's the actor of his generation, I think. uh, I agree with you. Yeah. I, I remember I got that job. And, you know, there was a lot of people who were much more qualified than I was going for it. So I didn't think that it was going to happen, but they offered it to me. And I was like, oh, my God. And I remember I rang my agent because they spoke to me after the audition. They said, do you want this part? And I was like, straight oh. after the audition. Yeah. Oh, now, my now, goodness. That's he amazing. Does, he does that anyway. Shane Meadows. He likes to cut out the middlemen like agents right. or all of that. So anyway, I rang my agent straight afterwards and I was like, um, I got this part. And she was like are you sure? (laughs) But I think so. So I was getting a train going back to Manchester to try and get a flight home. Yeah. But I remember the very first day of the shoot, I had to do this two-hander with Stephen Graham in this (gasps) building site. So it was going to be me and Stephen Graham and Shane Meadows. And like, I woke up at the hotel and it was like quarter to seven in the morning or something. And I sat on the edge of the bed and I was like, I just going to have to ring them and tell them I can't do this. Really? 
Well, I was terrified. Did you get kind of imposter syndrome? Was, was well, I mean, I have like that a lot anyway. Yeah, most of us have. I think that's kind of pretty common to actors. I think that's just, well, that's also the, you know, because we're handed the stories of how an artist or an actor comes along and it's like they were spotted, they were discovered oh, as if they were all rubbish. Res- Whereas yeah, yeah. an actor has a funny old journey to something. And yeah. It's only the actor themselves who are privy to this kind of awkward journey that they move towards. So you always feel yourself having this imposter syndrome thing. I was like, I'm going to have to ring them because I was a bit overwhelmed. So yeah. The car arrives to pick me up and I yeah. get in the car and I go there terrified. We do the first take and Shane Meadows is like, yeah, I really like that. Can we do this? This, this? And then it was gone, you know, then you were suddenly. And also Stephen Graham is fabulously generous actor. Is who, he? Yeah. I mean, really, he is an actor of his status doesn't have to give room in a scene. Because they have earned their right to say, look, I think we should do it this way, yeah. which concentrates on my character. You know, that, yeah, that sometimes yeah. happens with him. There's none of that. He's just he's a super intelligent guy as well. He yeah. reads the scene and knows what a scene wants. And he wanted and Shane Meadows wanted to hear what my character was going to bring to it. And so there was all of that. Yeah, it was a kind of an extraordinary experience. But the, I, the material in it is so heavy. Oh, my God. I watched the first episode and I couldn't do it. I've often said the reason I was an actor was I can access my emotions very easily. And that helps with acting. You know, you mm-hmm. can kind of be mm-hmm. right in there and be it yeah. uh, rather than having to look for it and figure out how to perform it. And actually, that doesn't necessarily mean anything to the audience because I know I was listening to an interview from you and you were talking about Adam and Paul, which is an amazing film, which I will come to again because I'm still not finished on, on Viva. And you were saying that you actually sort of put the stuff on you build the character up from the outside in you know <laughs> well, I have done kind of I have done a bit of a, both a, a bit of both but with Adam and Paul it was certainly the sound of the voice the way that they move the clothes yeah. that they wear so it was very much from the outside inwards and it was because of the type of film that it was it was trying to be more Laurel and Hardy which is all about the clothes and how they move and and how they speak and so it made sense it wasn't trying to be a realist docudrama about yeah. the difficulties of living on the streets, although there was some of that in it, but it was more about trying to also find comedy in the darkest moments. And so it felt it needed a different approach in that sort of way. With the virtues, it was all dragon. Oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> I was there and I was actually shouting at this guy and I just said, I said, I'm sorry, I can't watch it because he's just spiraling down the most awful thing. He's losing his son and he's been mm. off the alcohol and then you just see him going for it. There are and, some oh. amazing scenes, though, in when he gets to Ireland and people like Helen Behan yeah. and Valgar are in it, uh, two absolutely extraordinary actresses who kind of, I mean, this was their arrival and calling card and they've gone on to so much more since amazing yeah I mean I will sometimes there's moments where I feel I can do these things but I think as you get older careful you you learn to manage (laughs) you know what things can kind of upset your your equilibrium and and it's it's a challenging watch and if these issues trigger you or blah 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 it's yeah probably yeah um, my husband tried to watch it too and actually he couldn't <laughs> he couldn't and he loves Stephen do you know what I mean he yeah, just yeah, yeah, yeah. he couldn't make it either you know maybe we're just a pair of well, I, I mean Shane Meadows does that with an audience he asks a lot of them and some people aren't in the space for it at the yeah time. and some people love it like some people yeah, yeah. love now to be honest I didn't mind crying with Viva today because it's a very different thing this is a journey I have to say Hector Medina is just the most compelling 
actor. Absolutely beautiful, beautiful, oh, beautiful oh. boy. And he was the first person I think who came into audition for the part. Was he? The casting director had him in mind, and she was like, he knew what she was doing. Guy. And uh, I wasn't there at the time. Paddy was over in. Uh, so this is Paddy Branagh. Paddy Branagh, who's the director. Wonderful Irish director. Yeah. And he sent me the tapes and he didn't say anything. I was like, yeah. who's that kid? Yeah. Said, That's Hector Medina. And Hector Medina, actually, strangely enough, not strangely enough, but actually is a straight guy. He's married. Is he really? Kid. Yeah. Like, oh, my goodness. How old is he? Hector. About or would he have been in 26, 27, yeah, yeah. 28. Really? He wasn't like I actually. That. I, wow. Like that, yeah. That part he plays. You know, he's very light and effeminate. Oh, and yeah. Hector wasn't like that, like loved the ladies before he settled down and was like really? well known. No, well, that was not there anywhere. And nor, and nor did he play it camp. No, he, he didn't. He played it, it very real. He oh, played, he played it really very real. Yeah. And he just is a brilliant actor. He lives in Miami now and he has two kids. Right. He's two uh, kids already. And I say that, but I suppose I had two kids in my kind of 22, like sometimes. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's a lot to be said for it too. You can still be young and they kind exactly. of have, have moved on. You know, I was funny. I don't know why in my head. I was meant to go to Cuba once and chickened out because of my claustrophobia. The previous trip I'd been on was to San Francisco and I'd had an episode and actually then just mm-hmm. didn't go to the one to Cuba. It was for work. But... I thought, right, well, I'm going to be looking at Cuba and, and I know a bit about Cuba, but in terms of the weather, and I just said the fucking rain, like you may as well have well, filmed it in the west of Ireland. Well, the rain <laughs> falls there and when it falls there, it's big tropical rain. It is yeah. big tropical rain. And I love tropical rain. Like, I just yeah. love the idea that you can still walk out into the middle of it and you're not cold. Yes, it's warm, and but then, you could feel that heat in the movie as well, though. And, throughout. And, uh, but they get quite a lot of rain because they're in the Caribbean. They have got all of this stuff coming off the Atlantic, coming off the Miami Straits. It can get very stormy there. They have got big storms that come in off the Atlantic and they've got a hurricane season. So rain is a lot. And there's, a, there's always quite a bit of humidity in the air. It's never dry heat. My very, very, very first arrival in Cuba back in, I don't know, 2005 or something like that. I arrived at the airport in Havana and I walked out and it was just drenching rain. Right. Oh, my God, is this going to be my holiday? (laughs) And when I was leaving, as I was leaving, I got out of the taxi. And just as I was going into the airport, it poured with rain. And I thought I wanted to incorporate rain. Yeah, yeah. And it works. It works well there. There's moments where it adds to the story. And then it is a story in a way about strength it really is it sounds kind of I suppose cliched in a way but it is absolutely not played that way in the film but it's really putting the macho against the and I hate this term and this is part of the story about strength the strong man the physically strong man and then the effeminate man and I actually hate that word because it implies then that women are weak (laughs) aside from anything to do with. I mean it's something that I've always thought that misogyny and homophobia come from the same place which Mm. is the hatred of the feminine I've always been interested in male effeminacy yeah male femininity and I'm not talking about transgender things there I'm talking about like I was always told that my own effeminacy you know I was quite an effeminate kid I would have thought that effeminacy was weakness and I was kind of always why is that like you were policed about how you looked at your nails or how you held your hand were you? you yeah I mean absolutely I think it still goes on today 
if you walk funny or if you lounge funny, you're suddenly like, oh, what are you? And then if you go back, like obviously what comes to mind then is Panty's speech about, you know, I'm always checking myself. I'm always checking myself. Mm -hmm. Did you very much feel, and I did read an interview with you. I've been sort of immersing myself in Mark O'Halloran for the last couple of (laughs) days. It's lovely. I know I love it. It's kind of, you sort of know someone, but then when you get that opportunity to really just kind of immerse yourself, it's lovely. I really enjoy it. And I feel I wouldn't be doing my job properly now that it's a job but you know what I mean I think the whole medium of podcasts allows you to have an in-depth real conversation as opposed to the four or five minutes that you get anywhere else so I think it would be wasting that (laughs) if you don't delve and find things that you find of interest but in one of your interviews I think you were talking about you actually said that maybe in Viva and I should explain I don't know if I've said it actually you wrote the screenplay uh, for Viva and you also play a role in it and I'll come to that role in a moment also but when you wrote it you were exploring weaknesses and strength and that sort of thing and that you also wondered whether you were actually exploring some of your own daddy issues and is that what that relates to because I wondered that so is it about I want to do a film that showed sort of both ends of the male spectrum yeah the kind of uh, more effeminate and then the more uber macho both of which sometimes I feel are a mask in lots of ways yeah I get what you're saying uh, they can be and I also wanted to look at the idea of drag and what drag means and why drag is so popular in gay culture uh, Mm. gay male culture and part of me feels that for young boys the thing they fear the most in their life growing up is their effeminacy it is what marks them out of different do you mean young gay boys or young gay boys young young gay boys especially that effeminacy is a very big thing that they're very frightened of because some straight men have straight men do have it as well and I suppose but for the gays I think they have the added. You just put the the in front of gays. The gays, I did. Always saying that's how you stereotype people. But You're obviously, like... I'm talking in generality, yeah, so yeah, there will no, be I some know, element of stereotyping going on. But for the gays, generally speaking, a lot of them are afraid of their effeminacy. A lot of them nice. growing up because they've got this layer that's known only to themselves for a while of their homosexuality, of their difference, and then they're being called out on their physical attributes blah 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 but when they get into a gay bar for the first time and this is what happened with me was I saw drag queens who were performing femininity as strength they were performing femininity as being like "Uh uh-uh and these aren't people who are saying they are women this isn't a transgender issue no it's nothing they are performing femininity as men as strength at their audience they're fierce they're powerful they're blah blah and that can be a very transformative experience for a young gay boy who has been through a sort of thing so I was always interested in that element and I was interested in the idea of a very I suppose toxic masculinity and I know that's a cliche as well at the moment but I wanted to talk about male violence and male control and what a lot of men feel is male power which is tied up in aggression in boorishness and control in all of those things and I wanted to show how this boy is stronger than his father just by being himself being true to himself and this father fucked up in his own life because he wasn't true to himself that instead of stopping and looking at other people and trying to understand other people he fought out against the world and caused terrible damage and so that was kind of the premise of what the story wanted to be 
What I like about it is, okay, obviously the central character is the young boy. And, you know, that's kind of where your leanings are towards. But you don't make his father one dimensional and you feel for the father. And there's some fabulous lines in there Mm. that the father gets to speak. You know, he talks about, I thought I was these and folks listening, I'm pointing to my non-existing muscles. But this man is a handsome man with a paunch, but he still has that muscular build. Another great casting, I think, also. And he said, I thought I was these and then these were gone and I was nothing. And then later, as the relationship progresses and they grow a bit closer towards a respective understanding in some regard or even an understanding of themselves in some regard, he says something that's very telling. And I'm paraphrasing, sorry, but something along the lines of he's talking about when the baby was born, that when you were born, I felt like somebody. And for me, that was in there. And then he still kind of screwed that up. What I love as well is he went out dancing, <laughs> you know. And yeah, he went out he, dancing he, on the Malacon. Yeah, he keeps I, I saying think to the son, you things, get the, the dancing from your mom. Yeah. One of the things that I tried to do, like I wanted to make the father as difficult as possible and for the audience to get to understand him. So he admits to having beaten his Oh, wife. yeah. He admits to having murdered somebody in a brawl. He punched somebody to death on the street and he physically assaults his son. Jesus. Yeah. And I wanted all of that. And yet for an audience to grow to some sort of understanding as he himself grew to some sort of an understanding of his life. And so that's a difficult thing to get right within a script. But we were blessed, as you said, with the actors. And in fact, the actor who played the father in it, his name is Jorge Perigoria. And Jorge was in a film called Strawberries and Chocolate, a Cuban film, which was like 1992 or something, or 1991 it came out. It was the very first Cuban film to deal with issues of homosexuality. Really? It got nominated actually for Best Foreign Language Oscar. It was unheard of at the time for American academies to be offering the sort of accolades to Cuban films. But Jorge Perigurria played the main role in it. He played this effeminate gay man. Really? Wow. Yeah, and he's one of the most celebrated actors on the island. And he works in Mexico. He works in Spain. You know, he's internationally known. I loved the character Mama. Yes, yes, yes. That's how she is referred through throughout. And again, another big man. Again, also a straight guy. Right. Okay. He's a very well-known actor in Cuba. In fact, like he's like their Brendan Gleeson, basically. Lots of people were really surprised when we showed the film in Cuba. They were like, oh, my God, he's actually wearing... (laughs) women's clothes like this this isn't somebody we found in the clubs this is a really top actor but he loved doing it we were just very blessed with the level of talent that's incredible the whole cast of characters it's funny unintentionally sometimes themes come up throughout a series of this podcast so one of them that has come up time and again is how the world has sort of evolved at the moment to this extreme political correctness in a sense and something that's come up time again because I've spoken to various writers etc and this is this thing of appropriation so as a writer I'm just thinking now that I learned that those actors are straight do you think say if you made that film now that people would be saying, well, you should have given that to a real drag queen or this. Well, is, I, I question this whole yes, thing because yes, yes, it's yes. about you know, acting. I hear it. There were real drag queens in it. There yeah. were real transgender performers in it, blah, blah, blah. Personally speaking, I think an actor is an actor. There I are some it. roles that somehow demand a type of authenticity, which is very interesting. So for instance, I think that 
up to a number of years ago in a world where gay people weren't allowed to be out of the closet or yeah. their career would be ruined. The idea of straight people playing gay roles and winning awards for it was a little bit nauseating. Yeah. So I think also at the moment for a transgender community where their own visibility is practically zilch within the performing world or the blah, blah, yeah. to have a straight actor step into that role and play it to great acclaim when transgender visibility is very difficult within the entertainment industry. I can understand why they would be asking, why can't a transgender actor play the role? Mm-hmm. I don't think that's a hard and fast rule, though. I agree and with I you. Think, yeah. And I think that there are sensibilities to be taken into account. I think when we go into this saying, like, I don't believe that cancel culture is a thing, or if it is a thing, it's not a new thing. Right. Like, there are people who are saying it is simply for political reasons. They are using it as a wedge issue to get their own agenda or to frighten people. So do you think that it's being used by both sides? I think it can be. I'm not saying that one side or the other. But I do, as we all know, being cancelled nowadays is a career move. Right. I haven't seen anybody who's been cancelled who hasn't gone on to a much larger career. Uh, But I think that's if people have careers, right? So I did an episode way back in season one and Mm -hmm. I talked to a journalist and author. She writes young adult books and she was literally sort of cancelled in a way, in a smaller way, because she'd written an article about, you know, where do we find the balance between fat shaming and talking about health? And of course, typical, the paper she wrote at first says journalists won't allow her child to be taught by fat teachers. Basically, pretty much she went to sleep and before she knew it was all the way around the world she lost one of her jobs as a journalist that sort of thing but in that episode then we kind of actually spoke about do you remember that woman who went to Africa she made a joke about the AIDS and to Africa yeah I mean her whole life has been destroyed so there are people like that they tend not to be people who were famous before and I would say like I would say that's not new like we have we're being told that there is a modern political movement in which there are people who are trying to silence the mainstream I don't believe that to be true I, I think maybe it's, it's an issue fame. of power and that social media it just gives gives social it, media it, is, allows it to get bigger and global I mean I have my own things with social media I mean I've come off Facebook and I'll never go on it again I just think it's an absolute pit but I use Twitter quite a lot you do and I think Twitter like I have stopped when we met <clears> first actually it would have been <throat> through the marriage equality campaign yeah. and actually I, it's your face I see when I remember that day outside the GPO I think yeah. you were standing in the crowd. I was, yeah, I was, yeah. And it's funny, it's your face. I didn't really know, kind of make any connections, but it was just your face stood out. You're tall and as you're speaking. And I mean, it was literally like a minute and a half or two minutes. And then I only started to use Twitter for marriage equality and realized, oh, this is a tool that's actually really useful. And I think it really has and can be very useful. And I think it was really instrumental in the success of the marriage equality campaign. For sure. But I've always been someone very opinionated, never afraid to speak my mind, but always open to discussion. I think that's the whole point. And I just think that's gone now. And I have become afraid to say stuff. I I say it on this podcast. Yeah, That's why I love it. I say whatever I want on this podcast, but I don't do it on Twitter. I find this is what I do with Twitter. By the way, folks, you should follow Mark on Twitter because he really has a wonderful (laughs) sense of humor. What's your handle? Mark O'Halloran, just basically. Mark O'Halloran. What I do is, (laughs) like, I'm not myself on Twitter. 
Okay, you have a I'm persona. I'm a ridiculous version of myself. Right. I think people should do that. Yeah. With what they're doing online. It takes all the heat out of it. If somebody comes at me, it's not a personal assault. I will try and be as ridiculous as possible back to them. Yes. And deflate it that way. But like there is poisonous stuff on there. Yeah. I try not to be personally insulting to people online, but sometimes <laughs> we're not perfect. I do sometimes. No, you have, a, you have an intelligent sense of humor online and you also change your name sometimes to associate with or go with. And you've also got a beautiful cat. Kitten. My lovely cat, Delia. Yeah. She became quite a prominent member of my household. In fact, she's the only other member of my household. <laughs> Actually, I got her during lockdown. And yeah. Yeah. You and haven't given because... her back like some horrible people have given their dogs back that they no, got during lockdown. I mean, I mean, oh, it's awful, isn't it? Yeah, I know a lot of I don't of the... know how you could do that. But anyway, I don't either. I don't either. I mean, but I an is an undertaking. Like a... That's the only thing that's for sure. And, you know, I've begun to get work travel is happening again. Yes. So I have now got my cat sitter who comes and lives in my oh, house. Oh, yeah, because you're really only kind of back from Sweden for a few weeks. There. Yes, I was in Sweden doing a play over there and... The very nice Rodney from Brazil, who is a close friend of mine and he's friends with people I know, he comes and lives in my house and looks after the cat while I'm away. Oh, very and nice. Delia loves him. But you have to think about those things when you're getting a cat. Oh, sure. Look, I have, a dog. I have three dogs and we used to have big dogs. I've hardly ever been on holiday. I'll be perfectly honest mm -hmm. because we got big dogs first. Nobody wants to mind big dogs. Yeah. We now have three small dogs. They're all rescues. And one of them was just so horrific. That's just such a horrific start in life that anyone comes near the house. It's, <laughs> Get the bad man away. Get... No, but it isn't just barking. She'll go to nip at their heels. Mm. Like I have to say to people, don't move. <laughs> and I have to run around, chase her and hold her. And if they walk by me, she'll go, yeah. I got someone in to try and help me train her. And she just said, she's a really clever dog. And she's just saying, get him out of here now. But she paroles if we're sitting out the back garden in the sun, yeah, she's yeah, rolling yeah. up and down for every noise to protect us. Anyway, I wouldn't be without her. She's made me smile and laugh working from home. I love her to bits and sort of likewise. She has a bit of a separation complex. If I go from one room, she can't rest. Well, Delia genuinely uh, follows me from room to room, although no, she's she... having her morning nap at the moment. So she's grand. She sleeps she's in the bed with me, which I'm told you should never do. Oh, but you can't throw the cat out of the bed. I know. Oh, and I know I feel that she's been incredibly good for my own mental health for instance, oh yeah that's because... something that I would say to people get a pet because it stops you navel gazing you have to look but after instead someone of being else. inside your head yeah. you're following a cat around your house all day going <laughs> who's the best girl are you the best girl you are the best girl that goes on for hours and hours, and hours I and talk hours. to all of mine and they're all different I'm struggling at the moment because I have one male and two females and I just want to say come on girls and I'm like how ridiculous is this and I'm kind of going, that's not fair on Scruffy because <laughs> he's a boy anyway there's some wonderful lines people if you can get an opportunity to watch Viva please do it's a wonderful movie I actually rented it on Apple TV it's on iTunes yeah I couldn't find it on Amazon Prime. It, it goes and comes day. from these platforms. Yeah, these but I kind think of it's do. on um, volta.ie, which has got the best sort of resource of Irish. Oh, okay. Um, I've never films. I've never come across that. It's so, the same people who have the lighthouse. Oh, so, right. Lighthouse so cinema. I downloaded the best 499. I spent in a long time. Just really, really fabulous. But I loved there's a few lines in there that really kind of come straight to the point towards the end. Jesus asks his father, would you prefer if I was someone else? 
And the father looks at him like, what do you mean? And he says, well, someone straight, someone stronger is the translation, because, of course, yeah. this is in <clears> Spanish. <throat> well, you hear the word machismo, I think. Or, or, yeah. And the father looks at him and says, wouldn't it be easier? No. And Hazel replies, I don't know. And that really set me thinking as a mother of a gay son. I love my son wholeheartedly and his husband for who they are and all the rest. But I have had that thought. Would life have been easier for him if he wasn't gay? And that actually made me think kind of who might even think that that's the first time I've ever been made think about that I don't know how I feel about it but I will think on it for a while but really some thought-provoking stuff for me anyway yeah I mean it's very much a conversation from a parent's point of view Mm. like he's trying to say to his dad I want to go back to performing I think that's where it happens in the scene I want to go back performing I want to blah 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 but these are questions that Jesus I don't think has asked himself because Jesus is actually kind of at peace with who he is yeah oh yeah you don't well by his mother when he listens to all this he has this other scene with his father in a bar the father's looking at this woman and going like fuck she's gorgeous and his father says to him what is it you see when you look at her he's like he's looking at this woman feeling just desire and he's going i see the same as you do and he goes i don't think so (laughs) i don't think so at all He's desperately trying to understand what homosexuality is or what homosexual desire might be. And he just can't understand that with the same pair of eyes or with eyes like like his son has eyes, he can look at this woman and not feel sexual desire. He's like, what? Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. Like, I like that element of the film trying to show a very macho guy struggle to understand somebody that he knows he loves in a very complicated way. Yeah, and yeah. And, and I also thought there was nice little things about how dancing was OK for him. Yeah, because it was with a woman. <laughs> I thought they were really, really very clever subtleties. And of course, lovely lines. I think it's from Mama. One thing you should do towards the end of the film, you know, it just says, just be fully yourself. Otherwise, you will have nothing but regrets. And essentially, in a way, that's what the father is. He's dying um, with nothing um, but regret. Nothing but regret. It's a fabulous movie. I won't leave talking about it till I talk to you. You actually, and this is kind of on my mind because the episode of this podcast that went out last week is with the fabulous Kate McGrew, who is a sex worker. And we had a lovely conversation about performing and art and how she became to be a sex worker and the performing aspect of that and I was very interested in her journey you know and she just seems to be someone who's passionate about whatever she does and you know kind of goes into it and obviously we were having these big conversations about how society decides certain things are immoral or not appropriate Mm. or whatever but you actually in this film you play a sex tourist yeah (laughs) not the glamorous stuff or roles really no I know and actually I realized then how tiny and slender and flimsy Hezu is because you're not a, you're a tall man you're not a big man but he's just so fine so, boned. I think the word they use is a twink which is a a young slim boy interestingly enough like Paddy said will you play that role and I said yeah blah 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 and then I realized that I had to be naked in the thing. We right. shot it in such a way, but it was put together very tastefully. I think it is put together very tastefully. It's, so you know, it saved the world from complete nudity for me. But <laughs> we had to film the scene nude, me and Hector. Oh, and okay. Just, it was literally the most embarrassing moment of my whole life. Was it? 
Well, because here I was, I was the writer of the film and I kept yeah. thinking, he's thinking. I wrote, this, I wrote part this part for myself. For myself. Oh my in, the, in the film, the character that I play is called Ray. And it says he's clapped out in his late 50s. And before you weren't that to, old back then. No. And before I was going over to Cuba, the producer and Paddy were going like, well, you'll be playing Ray. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it was a joke. And then I was playing Ray. So I had to explain to Hector, I was going like, I didn't write myself this role. I don't know why. <laughs> you protest too much then. <laughs> I know. But at the time, that I was over in Cuba, I also wrote, when I finished the screenplay originally back in 2011, I also wrote the play Trade, which was also about sex work and the exchange of money and how an exchange of money or buying and selling either yourself or another person alters the moral questions that are going on. The way you phrase that just kind of jumped out at me because I'm thinking about these things. You know, we were talking mm -hmm. about the transactional nature of sex. Yeah, it is transactional by its very nature because you're giving and taking. Yeah. You know, some people can just be, yeah, do it all for me, honey, and I'm not going to do anything for you. So it's always transactional in mm -hmm. nature aside from money. But you phrased that there. You said when money is exchanged, if someone is giving themselves or something you used the person as opposed to giving sex so yeah. there's a, there is kind of a, a difference there and I think to me what that sounds a bit like is with your Twitter account it hurts less because that's not you on Twitter <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah I mean it can be I find that no matter what point of view you come from on the issue there's still moral questions around the buying and selling of sex there's still mm -hmm issues about how we care for one another, about where truth lies within that, about where people's hearts are in that. And, and I've always been very interested in it. And the play trade became the film Rialto. I so, haven't seen either. I'm sorry, but I will be checking. Well, there, out. It's about an older married man who has kids who are the same age as this rent boy. He suddenly finds himself in a right. strange relationship with. He doesn't identify as being homosexual. The older man but he believes he has fallen in love with this young 18 year old boy. And he is living in the wake of his father's death. His father was okay. a monstrous human being. He's basically in the throes of a very big nervous breakdown. And he decides that he wants to be a good person and a whole person and a truthful person. So he goes home one day and he sits his son down and he tells him, I'm in love with somebody who's the same age as you. And I pay him and he fucks me and I love him more than I love you. Oh, my God. And he tears his family down around him. And that's just so self-destructive. So, I mean, the whole thing is self-destructive. Oh, thinking, I can't. I don't know if I can watch that one. He keeps <laughs> thinking he's having these epiphanies where he's going, oh, that's clarity right there. He meets the boy again, finally, at the end and says, you know, I've done this. I've set myself free, basically. And I love you. And the kid goes, look, what's happening here? This is just this. It isn't real. It's money. That's all. Mm. And the man is like... <laughs> Is this what I've destroyed my life for? But actually, there is some hope at the end of the film. It's about somebody hitting rock bottom and how you get to rock bottom and how to be a moral person in a very morally conflicted world. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. 
And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Yeah, it was interesting because part of our conversation with Kate, I was asking her, is it relational? Because she would have a lot of regular clients. And I said, so there must be relationships there, you know? And she was saying, well, look, like they're never going to run off with me or anything like that you know and I said no I didn't mean a romantic relationship I actually meant relational no more than if you go to the post office every week you develop a relationship with the guy behind the post office yeah you're carrying out business but there's still a relationship there that is different (laughs) than if you went to a different post office every week I mean I know that sounds very strange you know and she said yeah there is of sorts and you know perhaps there's kind of a comfort there but she certainly said whilst there's that kind of fictional because I think this is one of the issues is so much of what we know about sex work and these kind of things just comes from fiction yeah we rarely get to hear it straight from the horse's mouth so to speak but she said yeah you hear a lot about you know or you read a lot about people wanting relationships and I know she talks to her clients because I know she was saying to me oh we were just talking the other day about how sex is all in the brain and I actually did a whole podcast on that but she said no I mean they're all coming to orgasm and to pay for that but we can have a chat on the way so I think it's where there may be an imbalance is but I mean she's a very confident woman she knows what she's doing where she's at why she's doing it not everybody is in that space yeah I suppose we were interested in the the issue of choice her power to choose that moral objection to the sale of sex that's Mm. basically it I think that everybody needs to be safe and to have a safe working environment and that there are protections for people who are involved in that arena because it's very open as a lot of things in life it's very open to exploitation yeah so I think that's the only objection but I think that for me there are moral shades in there that I'm very oh of course nothing yeah and nothing is black and white and I I think it's interesting you explored that I wondered and that's kind of why I brought it up really because I'd been thinking about that and then watching the movie again you know because that becomes part of Jesus world and the world I think for boys and men who work in as sex workers is a different world than it is for women and in some regards it can be even less safe. I interviewed a lot of the boys who work the sex industry in Cuba when I was in Cuba and a lot of them would be quite macho kids Mm. you know like 20, 21, 22 who believe they're in complete control of what's going on Mm. and actually believe that the power within the transaction relationship rests with them because Mm. they feel these men in their 60s and 50s or 40s these arriving and they're this beautiful young guy Mm. like I can have any of those people they can treat me really well and blah, blah 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 but I don't think it's quite that 
I see the exploitation of people by tourists sometimes, and I see how money rests power with people who normally wouldn't have power mm. within these relationships and how they can exploit it. And, you know, you'd watch them in the clubs sometimes and they'd have two guys with them and they're paunchy postman from mm. Frankfurt. Really? Yeah, yeah, it is scary. And I think part of what scares me is understanding from the human brain development perspective that our brains are not fully developed until we're 24 or 25. And so the brain really, once you hit puberty, it actually completely remodels itself and it does so from the back to the front. So that's why the teenage years are a time where you really are vulnerable and prone to mental health issues and those kind of things. So literally your brain is completely rewired. Loads of connections that were there before are pruned out that's partly why you have kids don't even feel like themselves anymore because the pathways to previous experiences are gone but the big issue really is that your frontal lobes are your executive control center right so they are really really well connected part of your brain and they are the part of your brain that assesses risks that makes decisions that can plan and organize and it's the part of our brain that actually saves us from ourselves it has the capacity to override your fear centers for example or your emotional centers which are unthinking and can be maladapted and fire incorrectly and your frontal lobes can come in and see the big picture and go no hold on a second (laughs) let's get some perspective on this so that is not fully developed that is the last part of the brain to redevelop so teens young men young women in their early 20s actually do not have the capacity to assess risk like I've seen in my time there like when I was over there the very first time I was staying in this gay B&B in the middle of Havana Havana Central and it was like living in a Mexican soap opera it was just unbelievably funny so there was this guy called Don who actually I wrote a part based on him in Viva he's the guy with the bandage and the and the oh yeah yeah, yeah 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 I arrived he's in incredibly the, straight looking you know, he's, you, know. He's, you know I arrived in and there was this guy Don sitting at the table in the front room as I was moving my bags in and he was there with I don't know Gunther from somewhere in Bavaria Germany sounds like it yeah yeah and yeah. he was like Gunther was crying and Don was holding his hand and going, hey, we'll have next spring when you're here the next time and blah, blah. So I was kind of like, get out of the way. So I went into my room and I came back and Gunther had gone off in a taxi, but Don was still sitting there. Don spoke very good English and I said, hey, how are you? And he goes, yeah, good, good. And I said, are you staying here? He goes, no, 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 no. My boyfriend, Brian, is arriving at quarter to four. (laughs) He was just seeing someone else off. He was seeing he had the most well-organized calendar. I don't know how he did. none of the other men knew that he had other guys on the go. And he lived this fabulous life. Wow. In Central Nevada. He was full of just the joys of spring. He was just an absolute I haven't seen him in a long time. I'm sure he's living somewhere. Yeah. Did you kind of fall in Lander. love with Cuba yourself with the Oh well, I mean Cuba is a second home for me. I mean, I have a partner in Cuba. We met during the making of Viva. We haven't met for two years now because of lockdown and all of that. But I think for me, Cubans are very like Irish people in a very strange sort of way in that we have a very similar relationship to culture. I think that we feel we identify ourselves through our culture, through our music, through our literature, etc. They're messers like are they? people are complete messers because i was wondering about that because the banter in the, people down the venue and, and it's classic typical irish banter it is they've got a similar relationship to nationalism that we do or that we used to maybe when i was growing up i remember the intense 
heart scalding love of Ireland that was instilled in us in school. I didn't have that. But we also had it in tandem with mortification at Ireland. So we were intensely proud and absolutely mortified at the same time. And that's what I grew up with. And you grew up, I should say, you grew up in Ireland's tidiest town. Did you see that Ellis Ellis won? Oh, Ellis! Gosh almighty, they haven't been there on a Sunday morning when the the supermax um, (laughs) cartons are everywhere. I liked that relationship. Like they've got this thing where they're intensely proud of the revolution and they're mortified at the same time. They want to be like their next door neighbor, the United States of America, in the same way that we used to I, I be, like be very UK, yeah. intensely jealous of my English cousins and all of that. But I, also I we used to want to be like people in the US. How the world has changed because you go, no, thank you. Don't want that country Not anymore. So I think that those things are very similar. And I think there's something in their hearts. I call Cuban people and Irish people at the same time damaged jokers. Right, okay. There's something about the way we celebrate life when we're out and we're doing this and that. Irish people are, there's a sadness in our hearts sometimes, I think, Mm. you know, in a very generalized sense. I talk to quite a lot of Brazilians and they tell me that they find Irish people incredibly difficult to understand. I asked them why. And they said they come on really strong, Irish people do, with the welcome, you're brilliant, fabulous, blah, blah, blah. And then they'll never call you again. Or they mightn't even acknowledge you the next time they see you. And I was wondering what that was all about. And it's that thing about the instant need to be liked, the instant need to believe it. But then there's nothing underneath this to hold up this relationship. So they run away. And I see it in myself as well. And I, I think the Cubans can be like that. They can be very much like, hey, 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 hey. Yeah, yeah. And then it's kind of, I'm not sure why I did that. I'm not sure how I sustained that. And like any of the Brazilians or the Venezuelans or the Mexican people that I know who have tried to be in relationships with Irish people find it incredibly difficult. Really? Yeah. That kind yeah. of it's that funny unknowability. How- and also you need to be able to, when you both when you know Irish people, but when you know Cubans as well, to be able to study subtext and code, because yeah, that's how and speak. that's one of the last things that comes when you're speaking a second language. You know, those nuance and the ability to be able to tell a joke. That kind of is really when your language has Even progressed. To understand why a joke is being told. Right. Which I think sometimes in Irish culture, you need to know why a person is telling a funny line here. Right. Because usually it's to undermine somebody else because they're avoiding an argument. Right. There's a power dynamic going on. Somebody from outside that can look and go, I have no idea that there was an argument between you two people, someone right. from outside of the culture. But we as Irish people understand what slagging means and understand what that kind of use of language within a group means. It's interesting just to see that that cross-cultural difference because my eldest son is dyslexic and he's always struggled with as many people with dyslexia and he, he has a quite severe. Um, he struggles with irony. He it's very literal and he like that if we crack a jokes or whatever, then we we sit no down, we were joking. And then you'll hear him, he'll say something that didn't go down well, and he'll go, Oh, I was joking. Do, you know, and so that kind of gives me an in to see that, that it is like speaking a different language. I remember talking to someone once and they said sometimes for them it's like they've arrived on the outside of the spaceship to Earth. And everyone else has the manual, but they weren't given it, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and it's kind of a, trying to make sense of something where you don't quite get those subtleties. It's very difficult. I see that Cuban culture works like that as well. I was very taken by the similarities between them when I first went there. Yeah, that's interesting. And in a way, would you say then you kind of feel at home there? Oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's yeah. It's the second home. 
I feel as if I've got my feet in the ground when I get there. You know what I mean? Yeah. But you not... strike me as someone I'm reading through. I, I can't believe we spent so long, but there's so much in the movie Viva. But I listened to some of your interviews with people where you were kind of talking about how you started out writing, which I'll come to. And you were giving some tips to people. And there was something that you said. You just strike me as this very sort of centered, philosophical individual like I feel that it's taken a huge amount of my life to get even just a fraction of that because I was always very fiery and why didn't that happen and I want this to happen and one thing that jumped out at me was you were being interviewed and you were talking about your first time writing writing your first play I think it was so you'd been working as an actor you were about 30 and I think you said something and I'm paraphrasing something along the lines of and I was going through one of those periods you know where when you're actor it sort of happens you know you have a kind of quiet period and I went God, I wish I'd known him when I used to be walking up and down the walls and we had no mobile phones and I'd leave the house to go into town just in the hope that when I came back, there'd be a message on my answer machine. I played it over like the life on an actor. Now, obviously, as well, you had that great philosophy. If you want to write a film, then write a film. If you want to be an actor, then act. Now, I always found that very hard to do. And I didn't know back then that I could write like I only wrote my first book. Mm two years ago three years ago but you do have this sort of and you've sort of touched on it as well with as you said what you do with your twitter handle is that true reflection you seem to have a calmness and an acceptance and a i just work at what i do and then this happens i mean yes i mean i don't have any illusions that i'm some great genius i work really hard at my writing like i listen to people's writers in the world who go like yeah it took me eight days to write that and i'd be like (laughs) Oh my God, it took me eight months to get to a first draft. I rewrite, I work it. And I think that one of the things that I had to get over in my journey to writing and why writing came late for me was. 30, though, uh, is still quite young. I mean, I. 30, you know, I mean, at I the mean, time, I thought. At the time, you think your, your life is over. You know, there, like, was, there was writers 30. who had complete careers done, who had yeah, done yeah. all of their important work by, by the age of 30. But I felt that an artist or a writer was somebody who was preordained, that they had all of this inside them, and all yeah. they had to do was just put the words on the page. Yeah. And all was going to be perfect. Whereas I would write down notes, and there'd be notes here, and there'd be things written down there, and. I'd write this big slab of nonsense. But what I found was that if you just go in and tidy it up, and it was my understanding of not being very good that helped me to get better. Yeah. And I think that that's something that I carry on. Like I rewrite and rewrite and rewrite and rewrite constantly. Um, I've gotten faster with things and uh... Uh, yeah and you said that with your first film script a thought just came to my mind there I had my very first guest on this show in season one was the wonderful Hilary Fannon I don't know if you've read her first novel it's I have was that the macro no oh no it? no her first book was a memoir okay um, it's called Hopscotch and then her first novel is The Weight of Love I read that one as far as I know. A fabulous book that sort of switches from the 80s to now. And again, about sort of an unhealthy, imbalanced relationship. But like she just said, look, the way she sees it as a writer is you just turn up to the page. You just turn up to the page every day and you do whatever you do. And, you know, I mean, there's some days when I've been writing books, I've turned up to the page and I have nothing. So I save jobs for those days. Mine is different because it's nonfiction, but I'll read this academic paper and I'll make notes because I'm just nothing creative is happening, but it's all kind of bubbling away in your brain. But very rapidly, kind of your story really is you wrote this first play, Lenny Abrahamson, 
he was looking to kind of direct something and sort of asked you, had you anything in your mind? Well, the, the producer, Johnny Spears, came and saw the show that I'd written called The Head of Red O'Brien, which was a kind of a really crazy nonsense thing that was done in at lunchtime in Bewley's. Mm-hmm. I've done lunchtime theatre in Bewley's yeah. myself. In fact, I, I love it as a space. Fact, and... some man decided to have a heart attack while we were oh, on gosh. stage. Oh, my no. God. Anyway, whole other story. So it was quite a fun play. It was about a man who was obsessed with the film The Hunt for Red October and uh, his wife stabs him through the top of the head because of his extreme behaviour. Really (laughs) stupid, mad thing. It was me taking the piss out of a lot of monologues. There was a lot of monologues at the time. So it was called, its subtitle was The Last Monologue. I just began to just fuck around with things. Johnny Spears came to see it and he liked it. And he asked me to come and meet him in his office. And I did. And he said, do you have any materials for a screenplay and I said yeah and I didn't but I went home and I had been thinking about this idea I'd been very you know since I'd gotten to Dublin I'd taken a lot of notes about things I'd seen heroin addicts doing on the street I'd never seen heroin addicts on the streets of Ennis. You were living in Parnell Street tell us the kind of things that you you well at the time I mean this was the very early 90s so it was a much different district at that point a different area it was largely like half of Manchester Square had fallen down, like literally fallen down. It was fallen buildings. There was a third of North Great George's Street was in decay, a massive decay. The huge, like it was like a mouth of teeth with gaps in it. That was Parnell Street. And there was a lot of heroin addicts around. So I'd see things like a boy falling over in O'Connell Street in slow motion. That it took him about three minutes to hit the ground or mm. two, two adult women fighting over a chalk ice. You know, things that seemed both ridiculous, but also kind of sad. Very sad, yes. So yes. I wrote down this one pager which said I wanted to write this film that was set between sunrise and sunrise. They were called Alan Paul. You never find out which one is which. They meet a baby in the middle. And then I wrote some scenes. Uh, One of the first things that I wrote was the meeting with all their friends in St. Stephen's Green, where they're all drinking cans and have this chat. And I sent them in and Lenny read them. And Lenny really liked the scenes. Like I literally thought I was throwing them together and that they were an embarrassment. And he said, look, I really like it. And Johnny said, look, we'll pay you a small bit of money if you write a first draft of this. And I was like, yeah, thanks, lads. See you. Bye. Bye. I left the office going like, what the have I done like I but I love it you just said yes you see I'm always saying that to people I don't believe in luck I believe about being ready to recognize an opportunity and not being afraid to take it yeah and that's exactly an, a perfect example of it you are mm. ready you were observing you were building up stuff for your writing it was all in your brain marinating away and then this opportunity came and you kind of went okay yeah also, I have very little other opportunities in my life you know like I had closed down my whole life only to the point where I could only get on in the arts that was the only thing I was qualified for I was now 30 my acting career in the stage was going a little bit slower than I wanted to I wasn't getting parts I'd been vaguely unemployed for about six months or whatever and I literally was like okay I, I gotta get on this I went out to Anne McCarrick then to start the writing process I remember sitting at my desk going like how the hell do you start a screenplay like I don't know and so I just said that one of them was stuck to a mattress I thought that was hilarious and and <laughs> so I was delivering- it's the most amazing film there's not many films where I can actually remember where I watched it or first saw it but I saw it it was back when you actually rented movies out of yeah the video store and I always hosted 
Christmas Day in my house. And then my mum and dad would kind of go home and whatever. And then one of my brothers and his wife would stay. And I had picked this movie to watch for Christmas Day. <laughs> oh, ho, ho. <laughs> oh, ho, ho, ho. But we watched it just gobsmacked just blown away and I'm sorry there are real laugh out loud moments in a way that gets that poignancy across I think it's a genius idea when I read about it like you wanted to marry this really story about this social issue with Laurel and Hardy movies there was a film something about the west way out west which is way way out west I mean, I would have grown up on Laurel and Hardy, like yeah. it's mad. I mean, that premise also comes with a lot of difficulties in that mm. you go, are you laughing at? Are you laughing yeah. with? Are you exploiting these people? Are you not exploiting those people? So there was a lot of things, that, but Lenny and I talked and thought through those things before we got there. It was funny, I was, the very first week that it came out, we were brought onto a, a quite a well-known afternoon radio show, late afternoon to talk about it. And when we got there, the presenter hadn't watched the film and the researcher hadn't watched the film. So myself and Tom were there going, well, this is a bit odd. And when we got on, the presenter went on this attack saying, so you're laughing at street junkies and you think that's clever, do you? Blah, blah, blah. And we were like, I wasn't used to doing interviews. Tom really hated doing interviews. So we were like, no, that, that isn't what we're doing. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, it's on at cinemas. You can see it if you like, blah, blah, blah. But we had thought it through, actually. And we tried yeah. to get people to actually engage properly with what was going on there, you know? I think it's a beautiful piece of work. Again, one would wonder if it was put out now, who might jump on the bandwagons. Like I had, you'll know, um, Philippa Ryder, her own book about um, she is trans. And I had her on one season of this show talking. And like I was asking her, how do you feel about all these warriors out there fighting on your behalf? And she's like, I don't want anyone fighting or causing aggro. We just want what we want. And I think there's just like a bunch of people looking for cause and they haven't even asked the people. And in fact, that's kind of in a way what came up with Kate the other day. Like there was turn off the red light and let's criminalize the people who use sex workers. And nobody asked them what they wanted. You know, no, so there's that's, been no yeah, that's... there's no dialogue. So it's just paternal. It's, it's feminists actually carrying out another form of paternalism. Mm. We know what's better for you. But um, it's just a fabulous film. And your performance and Tom's performance are incredible. And of course, it's very sad. Yes, that... Tom died oh. not so long afterwards. Tom died in October the 6th, 2007. So it was literally maybe two years after the film came out. Uh, two and you were good friends. Well, Tom and I had been lovers for between oh, I didn't and know years. That. Yeah, we were, oh, we were together goodness. a long time. Now, we had split up by the time we were making the film. And in fact, when I was writing the film, I was writing it for Tom and I was sending messages saying, today you got knocked down by a moped and today you got a football in the face. Oh, my God. (laughs) It was me taking my ex's revenge. Well, God, not at all. So you must have broken up on relatively good terms. Very good terms. Yeah. We've been babies together. You know, I met him when I was 21. He was 23. And we stayed together till basically 30 or whatever oh wow right he had gone through a lot of very life-changing things like he had won a tony award at that point and wow and for me i was at the time struggling to find out who i was as a performer as an artist as a writer but and also I, when you're gay you have that struggle early on too and back sure. then not that you're ancient but it was a very different world 
to be yes, gay well, than it is world. now. We, you know, I mean, even just little things. And people forget these things. Like in the 90s, when Tom and I used to go on holidays, we had to worry about booking into a B&B or booking into a hotel in case we were told... You can't you accept it and you can't. And that happened, you know, yeah. you get turned away from places. And so like those things were always there. But actually, when you're living through that sort of thing, it doesn't feel outrageous. It feels like the reality of what's going on there. Mm. So we were living that, wishing that it was different. Now I look back at it with outrage. But at the time, you know, you can be complicit in how you handle this, like tone it down or don't pretend you're this, that or the other. Whereas now I'd be like, fuck yes. Yeah, well, there's the parent thing then again as well. I mean, the brain is adaptable. That's how if you end up getting put in solitary confinement, you can survive depending on how resilient you are. But the brain will adapt and will try to protect you and do those. Oh, tone that down. That's your frontal lobes going, oh, inhibit that behavior because that's might get you into trouble and do that Mm. but I would still see now Gavin is 30 now he was 30 this year and Jamie and himself his now husband would have been very similar to you I think that you know they were both still in university when they met Mm. and now like that they didn't go to clubs or whatever they love the drag queen scene now they absolutely love it but they didn't do any of that early on and growing up but I would still say to them which is probably terrible but you know I would say look be careful when you're going such and such a place you might be better off not holding hands there or you might you know and you're still Yes, I mean, certainly I would think, you know, stuff like being on the street and being aware that homophobia exists, etc, etc. I'm fine with that. I'm well able to look after myself in the streets. I know when to cross over the street. I know it. it's when you come across it on an institutional level, Mm. institutional level, even to the level of booking into a hotel or blah, blah, blah. That doesn't exist anymore. But it did exist. And I was almost complicit with it. And I, I, I found that really interesting from a distance now that I look at it. But even, you know, I remember things like invites to weddings in the mid 90s and people would say we're inviting Tom, but he can't come because obviously it would cause a lot of consternation at the wedding and blah, blah. And I'd go, yeah, yeah. And would you go on your own then? I hate weddings. I don't go. So So you just don't go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And actually, I think some of it came from that. Some of it came from that kind of like, really? Is that what we're doing? Yeah. Um, And so. Tom and I grew up with that, though, though we were very close. He was a big believer in me when I had no belief in myself. Oh. He used to say to me, you should write. You know, you've got a yeah. very interesting way of going about things. He used to celebrate the little bits of acting that I'd be doing. Like I'd have like five lines in a play and he'd come and see it and say you were brilliant. And yeah, love at all the time though, he was on it? Broadway. Do you know what I mean? Wow. And yeah, you go yeah. like, oh, that's really kind of you. I mean, but I think that the pressures of that relationship of someone being much more successful than another person, it wore on me because at a time I was maybe 27, 28, a young person has great ambition. Mm. And it's difficult when that's it within a relationship, that disparity. And I dealt with it badly, not him. I Mm. dealt with it badly. I found it difficult to deal with that idea that maybe I would never find that success. And that I would be always in somebody's shadow. Whereas Tom had no interest in it. And it was him, you know? Yeah. You know, yeah. He, he was just living this life and having this. I learned a huge amount from him, basically. I yeah. learned a huge amount about how to live properly and be a better person from him. But you seem very sort of zen and centered. And I, I think, you see, when we're young, I mean, I was dreadful. I started late at acting and I was horrific, awful, just 
everything. Oh, dude, dude, this is the most important thing. This, 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 this. And I suppose in a way I felt like, because I had two young kids, you know, I kind of felt, oh, I'm cheated. This is gone. My life is gone. And, you know, and it's only as you get older that you actually realize, you know, it's not. Opportunities come. Opportunities don't come. You just become more comfortable. I feel much more comfortable in my own skin since I turned 50 than I, I think at any other age. Um, I've had you for a very long time i am very grateful for your generosity with your time your so many other things i should have talked to you about but i do want to say to audiences a lot of my listeners are quite young audiences and some are based in the uk and they mayn't have come across some of this great irish cinema adam and paul is an amazing movie there's another one i did hope to talk about but we've run out of time and that's called garage with a, another amazing performance from pat short who yeah. really would be known as a a slapstick comedian. Really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is the type of comedy that I'm interested in. I wrote the part especially for Pat. Pat understands country life. And yeah. When you look at something like Killing Scully and all of that, he understands country life. It's it's hugely successful. People love it. And I think that Garage, in a way, is Killing Scully with the comedy turned down to zero. It's an incredible performance from, oh, it's from him. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Wonderful, wonderful. Well worth a watch. I like to end the episode mm-hmm. by asking for my guest's tip on surviving and or thriving in life. Would you have anything to share? And it can be from any aspect of life. Um, it's a difficult one to kind of say, like, in my work life, if you want to be a writer, I would say if you're writing a script, a drama script, what should you be doing? I would say write three pages a day. I know that sounds like a really simplistic thing to do, but I often get asked. First of all, I get asked, how do you become a writer? And I say, write. And they go, how do you write a drama? Probably about three pages a day is probably how you do it. Um, I say that because people get stuck when they're writing something like a drama or a film or a play and they try to write the whole thing all at once and you can't write the whole thing all at once you can only go from moment to moment and usually a moment is spread over a number of pages maybe three pages three pages is not an onerous task every day if you do that five days a week give yourself the weekends off you suddenly have 15 pages a week after two weeks you have 30 pages That's a whole chunk of stuff you're creating suddenly. I had BP Walter, Barnaby Walter on a couple of weeks ago. He wrote, I don't know if you read it, The Dinner Guest. Uh So he wrote that Sunday Times bestseller. And actually an interesting conversation there as well. We were talking about appropriation because he's a gay man, a young gay man. And the two protagonists in that are gay men. And he just was saying, it's ridiculous to think that that's the link between me and the characters. I know nothing about being rich. I know nothing about driving sports cars. I don't have a kid. It's just this ridiculous, tenuous link. But he says his books come to him whole. And he literally just writes the whole book down in three pages. And then he meticulously goes in and he plans and plots and character. I think you can come with a drama idea that has, you have the whole story there. You can do that, but you can't write the whole story all at once. Mm-hmm. You have to write it moment from moment. Well, he says he always knows his end. So you can write that. I suppose you have to know where you're going on a journey. So you can write the architecture yeah. of it. For me, I can't write my books till I know what my outline is. That's the first. I have yeah. to have that. I need to write about that here and that here and that here. But then I also have another journey where I have to, I know that's what I want to write. It's nonfiction. It's science. I have to make it interesting. Mm -hmm. But I have to find an in. I have to find a hook. 
I don't yeah. know whether that's the same as you finding your, you know, well, I want to do a Laurel and Hardy approach to it. Or, well, do you know, you, you take stylistic approaches. I also would tell people to keep it a little bit free. So you've got wriggle room to do. Sometimes your subconscious will throw something at you and you've got to be free enough to catch it, you know. And that's what I did my episode on Thursday about was creativity. And it is about letting your brain idle, take all the data you put in and let it find some interesting patterns. Thank you so much. That was really absolutely fascinating. Enjoy your trip to, fingers crossed. If I get there. But if if I do get get there, there. I will enjoy it, I'm sure, thoroughly. I'm sure you will. And I'm sure it will inspire your creativity again. Oh, coming up as well, you have, is your play still on the one after sex? Conversations After Sex went on at the Dublin Theatre Festival. Uh, Is it coming again? It will come back next year. Yeah. Okay. So that's one to watch out for Conversations After Sex. Another thing that I'm really excited about, again, another guest I had on was John Boyne. Uh And fabulous guest on this show. Fabulous episode. Really interesting. But you are writing the screenplay for... The television adaptation of The Hearts Invisible Furies. That is one hell of a book. And that's going to make an amazing TV series. Yeah. Yeah, How did that come about for you? And then I will let you go. Just it's, well, it's I, it's I work a lot with Element and uh, Element the, Pictures. The, yes, and they threw this major company in the United States called Endeavor, who are William Morris Endeavor, who are the, one of the biggest. Is that like William Morris, the eight casting agency? Yes, wow. I mean they're they're casting agents. They do the they're everything sports broadcasting. They're everything. They own everything. They are opulent. <laughs> Yeah, they would have been, oh, in my dreams, I'd love to be with the Willow William Morris Agency. We're writing it for them. Uh, They put the deal together and everything. So we're in the middle of all of that. I don't think it'll get filmed next year. If we're lucky, it'll get filmed in 2023. So we'll just see where we're at. Um, It's an amazing story. It's a great story. So the pilot is written. The breakdowns are done. I'm writing a second episode of it at the moment. So... Who's directing it or do you do? We're not allowed to say at the moment, but there is a hefty director uh, attached to it. I'm also adapting a book by a a young woman called Louise Nealon called Snowflake, which came out this year and was a big hoo-ha about it. There was a bidding war for this book. The book is wonderful and it deals with issues of, you know, there's issues of consent in there, there's issues of mental health. She's a wonderful writer. And uh, so the pilot of that is done and that's for the BBC. So you, I'm kept busy. You're very busy. It's fabulous. Mm. And it's such high quality work. And you did also do some work for another female writer, Sally Rooney. Well, Sally Rooney's new TV series is, has been made with Lenny directing it. It's kind of the follow up to Normal People, except it's her first novel, Conversations with Friends. So I wrote three of the 12 episodes. Oh, excellent. That's filmed already. It filmed for six months this year and it will be coming out in springtime I would say which do you prefer acting or writing or do you just love them both I like I like them both in different ways acting is very social and I really like that I'm not really getting the very big gigs in acting so I'm now at the point where I'm getting like three days in a tv series and it's not hugely satisfying whereas I can work with big things at home and my writing becomes more of a challenge and I enjoy a challenge and you have control. You kind of have more and control. And there is some control. Not, uh, I mean, yeah, not everyone well, has, you know, in the television world, there's a lot of people with a lot of control that you're working I, for. I, I think so. what I mean is control in the sense that it really helps manage anxiety. Well, I do, would, do you know you can be working rather than wondering, will you ever be working? Yes. And there's also this thing where you're dealing with major dramatic problems within a text. Whereas if you're doing three days on a TV procedural drama, you're arriving in going, 
Sarge, the file has just come in, you know, like, yeah, it's which meatier, is the most satisfying, you know? Yeah, it's meatier. To it's the, meatier, the writing. it's more uh, satisfying. I've got also in January this year, I wrote the libretto to an opera, which is premiering in New York. Oh my goodness. In January, which is great fun. And I'm just back from Sweden where I wrote a play for the, the Stads Theatre in Gothenburg, which was an adaptation of Bergman's film, The Silence. So I've been, had, I had a lot of lockdown busy, busy, coming busy. to fruition, which has been great, you know? My name is Sabina Brennan and you have been listening to Super Brain, the podcast for everyone with a brain. Superbrain is a labour of love, born of a desire to empower people to use their brain to thrive in life and attain their true potential. You can now go ad-free on patreon.com forward slash superbrain for the price of a coffee. Please help me reach as many people as possible by sharing this episode. Imagine if we could get to a million downloads by word of mouth alone. I believe it is possible. I believe that great things happen when lots of people do little things. Visit sabinabrennan.ie for the Superbrain blog with full transcripts, links and the like. Follow me on Instagram at Sabina Brennan and on Twitter at Sabina underscore Brennan. Tune in on Thursday for another booster shot from me and on Monday for another fascinating interview with an inspiring guest. Thank you for listening. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.